This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This is the Science Podcast for October 13th, 2023. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up on the show, after a dam is removed, what do we do with the silty soil left behind? Contributing correspondent Warren Cornwall joins me to talk about the world's largest dam removal project and what ecologists are going to do to revegetate the 36 kilometers of newly revealed River Edge. Next on the show, we have freelance producer and former guest, Tanya Rusi. She talks with physicist Andrew Cleland about a science paper from the summer on using the phonon, or a quantum of sound energy, as the basis of quantum computing. Now we have contributing correspondent Warren Carnwall. He wrote a feature this week on restoring land after dam removal uncovers it. Hi, Warren. Welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Sarah. Great to be here. This is a really interesting angle. You know, I feel like the science behind dam removal, why it's a good idea, has been discussed a lot. But the technique, the science of what to do with the newly revealed land along these reforming rivers, I haven't heard much about that at all. And in your story, is actually a bit forward-looking. It's focusing on the Klamath River dam removal set for next year. Can you set the scene for us there? What exactly is going to happen in 2024 to these dams? Yeah, so the Klamath River is a long river, more than 400 kilometers long. It runs from sort of the high desert of Oregon down through California to the redwood forests of the California coast. So it's this long river was historically, before the dams went on it, the third most productive salmon river uh, on the West Coast. A number of dams were built along that river for a number of reasons, some for irrigation, others for hydropower. There's six dams on the main stem of the Klamath River. Almost all of them are sort of pretty far upriver uh, in the drier, more arid area. And four of those six are going to be removed. One of them has already come down, sort of the smallest one that didn't have a reservoir. And then the remaining three are going to come down in 2024. It will be the world's largest dam removal project to this point. And how much land is it going to uncover that's been sitting underwater for, I don't know, 100 years? Some of it's been 100 years, some of it less, depending on when the dam got built. But it's going to be you know, more than 30 kilometers worth of river length. So that's a lot. 
Yeah. Now, when they do come down, what we're going to see is just kilometers and kilometers of land next to a river just covered in silt. The big question is, the focus of your story anyway, is what will grow there and can the deck be stacked towards native plants? Why is tending to riverside vegetation so important? You know, is the big concern that there'll only be invasive plants or there'll be a ton of erosion? What do people want to happen and what are they worried about? Well, you named some of the key features. So think about all the benefits that come from having a healthy vegetation nearby, particularly along rivers. So riparian habitat is critical. Uh, So that's habitat that's right along a river. It's critical for controlling erosion, for improving water quality, for providing shade that can cool rivers, not to mention providing habitat for all the creatures that like to live in riparian settings, so uh, songbirds and other kinds of things like that. Then you have, as you mentioned, the invasives as a concern. And, you know, invasives can provide some of the functions that native habitat can, but not always and not uh, in the same way. And so there's a real incentive to try to push the system toward robust native vegetation and away from invasives. Who is actually doing the restoration work here along the river that's going to be coming about once the reservoirs go down? Well, it's a mix. A lot of the people who are out on the land doing the work for revegetation are members of tribes who have lived along this river for thousands of years. Many of them are sort of young people uh, in their 20s who I was talking to who are really out there rolling up their sleeves and doing that work. But you also had some folks from outside, people who you know were ecologists and who were trained in this kind of restoration work. And so it was a mix. This is a bit of a modern problem, what to do with land that's newly uncovered by dam removal. So it hasn't actually been that well studied how to revegetate silty post-dam water or post-dam land. You talk a bit about the Elwha River Dam removal as an analog or a precedent for what's happening here. Uh, And there were restoration ecologists on the scene there. How did that work out and, and how might the Klamath project be different? The person who is leading the revegetation effort and the Klamath River was the person who led the revegetation effort on the Elwha River. Okay. That started in 2011, was really when the water started to go down. You know, we're basically a dozen years ahead. So the Elwha River is interesting for a number of reasons. First of all, some of the people who are involved in what's happening on the Klamath sort of learned lessons directly because they were there when the Elwha dams came down. But also, it's a bit of a time machine. It's a different landscape. The Elwha is on the Olympic Peninsula in Washington State. It's much wetter. It's shorter. Most of it runs through a national park, so it's had much less uh, human impacts on it than the Klamath River has. But nevertheless, they've taken a number of lessons from the time spent on the Elwha and are trying to uh, apply it to the Klamath. What are some of the key steps that they're going to take because of what they learned from the Elwha? One thing that they learned was that there is this window of opportunity right as the water is drawn down that is sort of this prime chance for plants to get a root hold on the land there because there's still significant amount of water in the soil. One of the concerns that they had on the Elwha was that the water was going to draw down and sort of nothing was going to be able to take root in this sort of sterile sediment that was left behind. 
And what they found was that plants that came in really early, either because humans came in and planted them in that first year, or because the sort of natural release of seeds from the surrounding trees happened to coincide with the water decreasing, those plants had a real advantage. They were applying that to the Klamath. So that's really driving a lot of what they're doing in terms of the urgency that they have to be really ready to go when the water starts to come down. What about the plants that did succeed? Were they surprised by what took hold? Yeah, they were. One of the common trees that first moves into a disturbed landscape in the Pacific Northwest is red alder. So it might be a place that's been taken out by a flood or a landslide or something like that. And before the dams came down on the Elwha, they had done experiments where they had tried to grow red alder in silt that they dredged up from the bottom of these reservoirs, thinking, well, this will be an analog for what they have to grow in later. And they all died. You know, the alders wouldn't grow. I think one, one sapling survived. And so, you know, some people were freaked out that this important tree wasn't really going to be able to take hold. And if it couldn't, what else couldn't grow there? So fast forward, like, so I went and visited the Elwha last summer, and I walked through an alder forest of 10 meter tall alders, just dark green, full of birdsong. And these were all alders that had sprung up on that sediment that they were worried wasn't going to grow anything. Okay. So not everything is going to be predictable from lab experiments in these big settings. You visited the Elwha, and you also visited the Klamath, areas around the Klamath. What were the researchers, the ecologists doing when you were there? What kind of work did you see? Well, mostly I saw a lot of really hard, sweaty work. <laughs> so I did see some what would be called research happening, right? So they were marking out plots of vegetation above the reservoirs because the reservoirs haven't gone down yet. And they're basically tracking what kinds of plants are growing there in order to act as sort of benchmark for what winds up growing once the reservoirs go down. Basically, you're like marking out these big spots and then you're walking through them, painstakingly counting every little plant that's growing in there, right? <laughs> that sounds sweaty, but there's more sweat to be had. Yeah, that was the easy work uh, <laughs> because a lot of it was really hands-on, was really applied uh, work based on the insights from the Elwha and from elsewhere. So I spent time with two different groups of people, one of whom was this crew of folks who were out gathering by hand seeds from the native plants there, because there's this real imperative to be ready, like I said, as soon as the water goes down to start to seed it. But you want to, you need to have your seeds already. And a lot of seeds. I mean, we're talking about kind of a large, large area of land that needs to be seeded. We're talking 30,000 kilograms of seeds <laughs> is their target. And then 250,000 plus shrubs and saplings that are already growing. Wow, that's a massive effort. Yeah. What about the invasive plants? We touched on that a little bit at the beginning. Are they going to try to somehow prevent them from taking hold? Prevent would be a stretch. I mean, uh, I, don't, <laughs> I don't think anybody was saying there were going to be no invasives getting into this new land. Right. But the sense is if you can slow their encroachment, it increases the odds that the natives will dominate. They have experimented over the last couple of years with various strategies of trying to create essentially a buffer zone around the rim of the reservoirs that's sort of like a no man's land for weeds. 
they're doing that with herbicides. They're doing that with like weed whackers and mowing. In some cases, they're having to go out by hand and tear out, you know, thousands of these really gnarly weeds. There's also an effort now to build fences ringing most of the reservoirs because there's a problem with feral horses and livestock. But the concern is that they're going to be picking up all kinds of weeds on their fur and in their hooves. And then they're just going to wander down into this new reservoir and essentially act like a giant seeding operation for plants that you don't want. Yeah, that does seem like bad news. But that's something they can keep an eye on as as the seedlings take root. Okay, so this is part of a trend, you know, dam removal. There have been some, but this looks like it's picking up in pace. More and more likely will come down in the future. You know, what else do these researchers want to learn to make these ecologically sustainable or sound restorations as, you know, dams are removed? What, what else do they feel like they need to know? Every dam removal is going to be a little different. Yeah. Right. Because you're in different landscape. The Elwha is pretty forgiving. It's pretty wet. And there's fewer invasive species, not so much on the Klamath. Every place is going to be a little different. But with each experience, they're probably going to gain greater insights about what strategies are really critical and what ones maybe don't matter so much. I spoke with a, a scientist, Chaya Werner, who's an ecologist at Southern Oregon University, and she is not directly involved in the revegetation effort like these other folks that I met. But she's sort of taking sort of a long view of wanting to see how these ecological dynamics unfold and how different factors influence who are the winners and who are the losers. Does it benefit to plant things really densely or do really dense plantings, are they counterproductive? How important is it that you choose the aspect of the slope that you plant things on? Those kinds of factors. And so Chaya could very well come out with insights about what forces are really reshaping that landscape and how what the people are trying to do interacts with these sort of natural forces. Mm -hmm. How they can lean into what works for their plantings. That's great. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I mean, there is also a key underlying message, which is, you know, it's easier to break things than to fix them. Absolutely. This seems like kind of a massive undertaking now that we've talked through all the steps. One of the things that I was really struck by when I was down talking with the people who were doing the real hard work, really on the front lines of this, almost all the people that I talked to were members of tribes who have been on this land thousands of years, and they were doing some of the sort of hardest, most grueling work, but they really seemed to be motivated by a genuine sense of purpose. You know, I spoke with one person, Richard Green, who is a tribal forestry student at a university nearby, and he was out there pulling up by hand these yellow star thistles that I mentioned that are just these spiky, gnarly weeds. And he talked about how his grandmother, Bonnie Green, was a political leader for the Yurok tribe. And he remembers as a child seeing her traveling to Sacramento and to Washington, D.C., and really dedicating her life to seeing the Klamath River freed up. And he felt like what he was doing was really carrying that mantle forward. And so I, I was really struck. For these folks, it's not just a scientific experiment and it's not just a job that they're really there with, with a mission. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Warren. Oh, thank you, Sarah. 
Warren Cornwall is a contributing correspondent based in Bellingham, Washington. You can find a link to the story we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Up next, freelance producer Tanya Rusi talks with physicist Andrew Cleland about one possible path for quantum computing. Before we get to the next part of the show, I'd like you to consider subscribing to News from Science. Every week, we share stories from our news site, News from Science. Science journalists and editors kindly come on here and tell a story for our ears that they've been spending sometimes weeks or even months reporting and writing. If we were counting, our award-winning journalists publish as many as 20 stories a week, from tracking policy to investigations, international science news, and yes, when we find new secrets about mummies, we report on that too. It's an unbelievably valuable service. If you were here with us during early COVID days, you must have heard how plugged in and devoted our news team truly is. Please consider supporting nonprofit science journalism by becoming a subscriber for around 50 cents a week. To subscribe, go to science.org news, scroll down a little bit, and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org slash news. Scroll down a little bit. Click subscribe on the right side. A few months ago in science, Andrew Cleland and colleagues wrote a paper on building a quantum computer using crystals and sound waves or phonons. And they demonstrated some of the key elements needed for a sound wave based computer. Freelance producer Tanya Rusi spoke with Andrew about the paper, starting with a definition of a phonon. This work focuses on phonons, which are a special kind of sound wave, as a potential element in quantum computers. Can you give us a quick description of what a phonon is? Sure. A phonon is the name given to a quantum of sound energy. So we work with sound waves and phonons are just the smallest unit of sound energy that you can have. And sound waves can exist inside of something solid like a crystal? Sure. If you hit like a tuning fork, what you hear are the, the vibrations of the tuning fork transmitted through the air to your ear. But if you look at the tuning fork itself, it's vibrating and it's that kind of vibration that we're using in this experiment. That's so cool. So your group proposed that we build quantum computers using these phonons or waves. Why would we want to use these waves in quantum computers? What's so special about them? Well, there's kind of two different classes of quantum computers. There's what people call quantum circuit quantum computers, which is what people use when they use superconducting qubits or ions or things like that to build a quantum computer. But there's a quite different way to build a quantum computer, which is using things like the quanta of light, which are called photons, in what's called measurement-based quantum computing. So it's, it's a way to do quantum computing that's quite different from the quantum circuits approach. And what we realized from this experiment is we might be able to do what's being attempted with photons with sound waves, with phonons. Is there a reason why sound waves would be easier to work with than light waves? Yeah, so one reason is that sound waves travel very, very slowly. They're about 100,000 times slower than uh, light waves. And that means that you have a lot more time to interact with them. 
so that you can better control exactly what they're doing and exactly where they're going. That's so interesting. How do you guys make these phonons or sound waves? Most of our experiments are based on a kind of conventional qubit called a superconducting qubit. And superconducting qubits are basically electrical circuits. And we need to take the energy in one of these electrical circuits and convert it into a sound wave. And the way we do that is that we use a material that's known as a piezoelectric material, which when you apply electrical energy to it, it will deform mechanically. So if you apply like an oscillating electrical signal to it, it will oscillate and generate a sound wave on the surface of that material. That's so cool. So the output of the qubit is a sound wave in this case. Essentially, that's right. Yeah. Okay. And so you make these tiny waves or phonons, and then what do you do with them once you make one? So first, what we had to learn was how to take a qubit and generate one phonon. And what's nice is that they're, turns out they're at the same frequency. So when you excite a qubit and then you release the energy as a sound wave, you get automatically one quantum of energy, in other words, one phonon out of it. But first we had to learn how to do that. The next thing we had to learn was how to catch that phonon when it traveled through the material and reached another qubit. So we figured out how to do that. And so far what we've done other than what we call pitch and catch these phonons is we've put a beam splitter to see what happens when we essentially have the sound wave hit what's like a mirror, but it's actually a bad mirror. So it lets half the sound through and reflects the other half of the sound back towards where it came from. Why would you want to do that? What that is, that's a beam splitter. And a beam splitter is a very useful and fundamental tool when you work with light, because when you send a, a light wave into an optical beam splitter, half of it gets reflected, half of it gets transmitted. And when you do that with light at the quantum level, so single photons, what happens when a, a photon, which is an indivisible object, when that hits a beam splitter, it can't split in half and go half back and half forwards. Instead, it goes into what's called a quantum superposition state where the photon both gets reflected and gets transmitted. And so what you're generating is something called quantum entanglement just by sending it through what is an optical bad mirror. And we wanted to check and see, does the same thing happen with a phonon as opposed to a photon? And just to make it sound kind of more exotic, photons are kind of abstract objects. They're combinations of electric and magnetic fields that are oscillating. And the fact that you can make a photon, it's not divisible, doesn't seem quite so outrageous. But what's outrageous about the phonons that we use, they make up the collective motion of a lot of atoms in solid, a huge number. So trillions and trillions of atoms make up one of these phonons. When you send one of these phonons into a beam splitter and you get this superposition entangled state at the output, you have trillions of atoms on one side of the beam splitter doing something and trillions of atoms on the other side of the beam splitter doing something, this enormous astronomical number of atoms is in this entangled state. And so it's kind of shocking that this actually works out. Can you just explain to our listeners what entanglement is? 
So entanglement is, so when, when we send this phonon, just think of it as a marble to the beam splitter. And what happens is the, the marble goes into a state where it's both been reflected from the mirror and transmitted through the mirror. There's just one marble and it's in this state where it's both been reflected and transmitted at the same time. So if you were to physically look at it, which means measure it, you would force it to be on one side or the other of the beam splitter. But as long as you don't look at it, it's actually in both states at the same time. And these two states are entangled in a way that if you see it on one side, the other side immediately disappears and vice versa. Once you have them in the entangled state, you can do things like interfere them with itself, right? That's correct. So we've done experiments where we can catch this phonon entangled state where, you know, it's on one side and on the other side at the same time, but it's only one or the other at the same time. You can catch them with the qubits and then re-emit them and have them interfere with each other in a way that you can kind of decide what's going to happen by controlling the details of that, that interference. Why would you want to make the wave interfere with itself? Is that useful for quantum computing? Yeah, basically, if we can use this many times over, make a system that has a lot of these beam splitters and generate a lot of interference between a lot of phonons all at the same time, it's a version of a quantum computer. We're nowhere close to doing that yet. We've just shown that we can do the basic steps towards that. But that's the goal of pursuing this direction of research. So another thing that your group demonstrated was the Hong-U Mandel effect, which is a way of showing two phonons interacting with each other. Can you describe why you would want to do that? One of the problems with photons, so the quanta of light, and phonons, the quanta of sound that we're working with, is that they don't interact with each other. They will pass right through each other without any sign that that they saw the other phonon or photon. So there's just no interactions. But it turns out that this Hungo-Mandel effect is a way to effectively make photons or phonons interact with each other. And this is an important ingredient for quantum computing using this kind of system. Right. With that first element in hand, we can then try to actually do something called a gate between the two phonons. Can you tell us what a gate is? Logic gates in classical computers are the way you perform operations between classical bits, things like AND gates, OR gates, NOT gates. Uh, basically, that kind of Boolean logic is how you, you build a classical computer. And quantum computers also have gates. They're just different from the classical computer gates. And if you can perform enough of the gates in a quantum computer, then you can actually build a quantum computer. And a lot of the hard work that's being put into trying to make quantum computers is to make these quantum gates work and work well enough that you don't make more errors than you do proper calculations. And so what we're trying to do is to basically see if we can make these gates with phonons. Quantum computing is a young field. It's kind of growing quickly right now. And there's a lot of different proposals for how we will even build one. How do you feel being really on the cutting edge of exploring like brand new modalities for quantum computing? Well, it's really exciting. There are, you're right, a lot of different flavors proposed for qubits. 
And a lot of that is because it's not clear which qubit is going to be the one that gets us there. But the promise of quantum computing, the promise that you can get this exponentially more powerful computer using quantum mechanics is sufficient excitement for me that I'm willing to try new things. Yeah, fair enough. If you had a quantum computer tomorrow, what would be the first thing you computed with it? Well, the problem is that quantum computers are useful for a lot of bad things. <laughs> Probably the good thing that they're capable of doing is quantum simulation. So you can do things in principle. If you have a quantum computer, you can simulate other quantum systems. For instance, one of the goals is to build a quantum computer that can simulate molecules, and that might help in molecular design of enzymes or in pharmaceuticals or things like that. And that's, I think, one of the most sort of positive looking applications for a quantum computer. Superconductivity is in the news. Could you simulate a superconducting system to help design better superconductors? Yeah. I mean, a quantum computer, if one is built, is supposed to be what's called a universal computer. So it should be able to do anything that a classical computer can do and do certain quantum algorithms far, far more efficiently and more quickly than a classical computer. So yeah, in principle, it could simulate a superconductor. It might help us discover a real room temperature superconductor. <laughs> yes, perhaps one day. Well, that's so fascinating. Thank you, Dr. Cleland, for chatting with us. I hope to see more from your group in the coming months. Yeah, it's been fun. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. If you're particularly happy with this week's show, go write us a review on your podcast app of choice. To find us on those apps, search for Science Magazine. Of course, you can listen to the show on our website, science.org slash podcast. This show was edited by me, Sarah Crespi, and Kevin McLean, with production help from Podigy. Special thanks to Tanya Rusi for her segment on phonons. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's AAAS.org slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.